So attacks are now becoming cheaper at an higher level. But this also means that at uh, the lower level, so uh, attacking a database to uh, gather information for identity theft, for example, it becomes easier. The voice you heard was that of Dr. Rosaria Tadeo, an expert in cyber warfare and my guest for this episode of the Exponential View podcast. I'm Azim Azar, the host of the podcast, and I also write the newsletter of the same name. The next few podcasts of this season are dedicated to the political economy of technology. Now, if you haven't heard the previous two episodes of the season, my conversations with Chinese artificial intelligence expert Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, or with economist and investor Bill Janeway, I can only recommend that you do. And perhaps more importantly, if you aren't subscribed to my newsletter, Exponential View, you're really missing out. It is where I publicly share the ideas that are shaping my thesis and framing my questions about the future. You can sign up to it by visiting www.exponentialview.co. That is www.exponentialview.co. And now on to today's podcast, where I'm with Dr. Rosaria Tadeo. She's the Deputy Director of the Digital Ethics Lab at the Oxford Internet Institute. She's a philosopher who specialises in the digital, in particular cybersecurity and cyber warfare. Since we recorded this podcast, in fact, the very day after we recorded it, three really interesting cyber warfare stories broke, and every single one of them touches on aspects of the following discussion. There was a report from Bloomberg that Chinese-made motherboards, a kind found in computers, had had tiny chips attached to them, most likely by groups close to the Chinese government. And these chips could allow hackers access to what the users were doing. The second was that the UK government directly accused Russian military intelligence for being behind several high-profile cyber attacks, including one on the World Anti-Doping Agency. And finally, the Pentagon released a new cybersecurity strategy, and rumour was that the Pentagon was going to offer its cyber warfare capabilities to its NATO allies. All major stories, all of direct relevance to the following discussion, and all breaking within this short 24-hour period. To say this is a hot topic is an understatement. On to today's podcast, where I'm with Dr. Rosaria Tadeo. Rosaria, it's great to have you on the podcast. Tell me about ethics and technology. They're two subjects I've written a great deal about in Exponential View. But what was the moment that brought you into this domain? Well, it's been more than a moment. It's been a path. Um, I'm a philosopher and an ethicist. So I was originally taken into this area by the strong uh, wish to understand things more, to get to the core of the things and understand the, the reason why things would happen in the way they happen. Uh, so I got into this field because I wanted to focus on this area. But then as I grew uh, older, I also wanted to make a difference. And, you know, I was and I am so lucky, as we are so lucky to live in this moment in which the world is changing. Uh, we're transforming it radically. And so I wasn't satisfied just with the idea of understanding how things were uh, happening. But also I started chasing the, uh, the, the ambition to change the way things are happening, were happening for the better, so to make a difference. And technology is the driver of all the, these changes that we are uh, witnessing and making. And so the idea of making sure that we would use technology to change the world into a better place uh, is the ambition that is driving me into this, uh, into this uh, area today. Change the world, make it a better place. We're going to start somewhere slightly, <laughs> slightly the other side of that, which is uh, the ways in which uh, technology could be a bit threatening. And one of your areas of uh, specialism is cyber warfare. Just how bad is it out there right now? It is pretty bad. Uh, it is. Um, so let's put it in this way. We live by the digit and we are learning that we can die by the digit. I should say this is not a sentence I uh, invented, unfortunately. It's from Luciano Floridi. Uh, but it gives you a sense. Our society is are becoming dependent on information and communication technologies and they allow us to do fantastic things, new things in brilliant ways, but they also are uh, a soft spot which can easily, uh, easily be uh, tackled and targeted. And at the moment we have uh, a situation which is very, very bad. I mean, the, the, the idea, if you think about the US, uh, 2015, they got um, ransomware attacks uh, on an average of uh, 1,000 a day. And two years later, we have 4,000 a day uh, ransom attack, uh, which is quite bad. I mean, if you think about WannaCry a couple of years ago, that was a good sign of how vulnerable we are, uh, how pervasive these threats are. 
and it's not is the damage is to the infrastructures, to the systems that we use every day, but it's also an economic damage. The estimates is that we the, this the impact of cybersecurity attacks by 2021 will be of 60 trillion dollars, which is quite uh, a vast uh, amount of money. So 60 trillion dollars would be larger than the size of the US economy by by 2020 in terms of damage from cyber threats. And is and so this is indicative of the the depth, the breadth of these attacks. Um, but also the sophistications that they are um, that they are reaching. So they are escalating on all these kind of axes and variables. So they are not just more common. They are not just more uh, impactful. They are becoming more sophisticated, which means that they are much more difficult to uh, tackle, to prevent, and to uh, fence off. There's a lot to unpack in there because you you described the rapid increase. I mean, four x year to year, 2015 to 2016, more than a million cyber attacks. Uh, per year in the US uh, in, in 2016 is my rough estimate. I think 4,000 times, yeah, 365 is about that. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, it's, it, you're saying they're getting more sophisticated. So does that mean that the cost of perpetrating the attacks is going down or is the other rewards for perpetrating the attacks going up? The cost of perpetrating an attack, it depends. We, we cannot really generalize, to be fair. So it depends on what kind of attacks we're talking about. Uh, there is, of course, this dynamic in which the, the higher the target once wants to attack, the higher the cost, because you would imagine that uh, an important infrastructure would be better defended, better designed. And so attacks might also become more expensive to run. But also it means that they can achieve a more impactful goal. So it's still worth, uh, worth the effort, I would say. Um, so attacks are now becoming cheaper at an higher level. But this also means that at uh, the lower level, so uh, attacking a database to uh, uh, gather information for identity theft, for example, it becomes easier. Uh, so at the lower level, the criminal level, for example, it becomes much more easier than it was before because the technology has been there for longer and you would imagine that in some areas, security measures are not that sophisticated yet. So we see a gap, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it strikes me that that on the one hand, you get the the Stuxnets of this the world, which was uh, for me a fascinating attack. It was a, a piece of code designed specifically to attack, I believe, some centrifuges in uh, an Iranian uh, nuclear facility, and it had to cross an air gap in the sense that the centrifuges were not connected to the to the internet. Uh, and so Stuxnet is a sort of thing that two mafia hoodlums can't invent themselves. It requires sort of state infrastructure. But on the other hand, you start to see these uh, cross-site scripting attacks that you can literally download the code off, you know, a, a paste bin that almost anyone can can, can use. And, and we seem to be seeing uh, this wider range of sophistication, but also just the increased volume because some of the tools are, are ready, readily available. So this is exactly the problem. There is um, the way we approach this thing, or we've been approaching this problem in cybersecurity, has been too generic to be effective. There are different layers. So on the one side, we have, of course, state and um, uh, approaches, which are more sophisticated and more problematic as well in other ways. But then there is a whole realm of criminal and terrorism, which is um, uh, operating at a much lower level and still very effective. Uh, for example, we haven't, and one of the issues that we have to face in this contest is the weaponization of vulnerabilities and bugs. So a lot of the problems that uh, that our softwares or uh, softwares or infrastructures have, um, the so-called vulnerabilities, so weak spots that you can target, um, at the moment they are they have become the commodity for uh, a huge market into the so-called dark web. And so it's very easy and also quite cheap to uh, go into this area. Basically, the dark web is this kind of uh, unscanned, uh, unindexed side of the the web. Go there and buy uh, a vulnerability that will allow you to attack a common system, uh, Windows-run machines, for example, or uh, other sort of um, very common software and enter into systems to gather data or information that you would uh, like to use for criminal or uh, illegal purposes, let's put it in this way. And we need to have a modular approach to tackle this thing. It's, it's a mistake to think that there will be one measure fitting all these problems because it's too vast and too differentiated an environment. Well, the motivations of the actors seem to be very different, even if the tools appear to be the same. I mean, I think the thing that's so curious about where the way we look at cybersecurity is that cybersecurity and cyber warfare 
almost go hand in hand the way that common street burglaries and tank warfare simply don't. And, and it's, it's quite odd that the same groups of vulnerabilities are exploited by very different actors. Uh, and, you know, I would just find it very odd if my local police constable was jumping out of a parachute, uh, with a parachute out of a plane uh, to attack some counterinsurgent. And very odd if my, uh, my local Air Force pilot was taking notes on, on the lost cat. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I think this is a very good point, and it comes out from the malleability of the digital technologies. Digital technologies, for the first time in the history of human mind or humankind, sorry, are technologies that can be used for many different purposes, but it's still the same kind of technologies. So, and it's it's true if you think about um, positive applications, so uh, uh, image recognition and healthcare. Uh, but it's also uh, is the same kind of affordance, uh, the same kind of potentialities that we exploit when we come to uh, criminal or violent uses of cyber. Indeed, it is the same technology in the hands of different actors, which makes, uh, which makes the difference. So it's, it's the intention of the actors. The mistake is to think that it's because it's the same technology, we can regulate it in the same way in all these circumstances and address the problem uh, in that way. And, and this is actually uh, a recipe for failure because different uh, actors, different contrasts, they call for different measures uh, to be effective. Absolutely. And what is the relationship, though, between those actors, uh, between the, the, the states uh, who are often developing the tools and often deploying the tools and the, 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 the sort of criminal actors who have got a, perhaps a short-term profit motive? It seems to me that they, they, they sort of benefit from each other and there is a, a symbiotic relationship uh, there. It would be interesting to explore it. So I, I slightly disagree on the development of the tools. So some tools are actually not developed by states. Uh, in most cases, what we see is that the private se- sectors or the private actors, big companies, they develop tools, not for criminal purposes, but tools that allow this kind of dual use and then states or criminal actors uh, take advantage of, uh, of them. States have played, uh, what you write in, in quality, a symbiotic um, uh, relations. It played an important role so far into uh, maintaining this kind of penumbra areas in which there are not so many regulations, but also not so many um, uh, uh, rules of behavior, if you wish. A good example of this uh, um, ambiguous role of, of state actors uh, is WannaCry. So WannaCry was this kind of, um, uh, we know now that it's state-sponsored attack, but it could have easily been a criminal attack. Uh, which ran on uh, a vulnerability that the NSA had found in um, uh, Windows systems, but that failed to disclose to the producer so that the producer could patch it. And the reason being that the state wanted to, uh, the US wanted to uh, use these vulnerabilities for espionage or um, its own security purposes. And this is uh, quite a, a problem because um, it's basically like knowing that there is a, pa- a problem with your front door and refusing to patch it uh, so that, you know, you, you might use it later on to, for, for some kind of reason. So the symbiosis there is, for the way I see it, more on the lack of regulations, which mm-hmm. states are pursuing in order to, to maintain a wider range of uh, maneuvering po- possibles. But this also allows, on the other side, uh, criminals and terrorists to have a, uh, a bigger set of tools at their disposal. There's a second difference as well, though, which is that when we used to defend ourselves in the physical environment, uh, you could do that with with moats and with with walls. When you defend yourself in the digital environment, it's not really sufficient to retreat up into the keep inside the castle on the hill uh, because of the nature of the the attacks and also the fact that the attack surface is so much... It's not just that the attack surface is bigger. It's almost fractal in its complexity. There are many, many other points of of vulnerability. And it seems that a lot of cyber defense is also about offense, that in order to really defend yourselves, you have to be able to pursue the threats. And that changes the the nature of the aggressi and aggressor relationship and maybe perhaps how we think about those roles from a a, a legal or an ethical perspective. Yeah, very much indeed. Um, I, I... I, I often describe this as a, uh, a two arrows that are going different direction. One is the security and the other is the defense. 
Are you very much right? We were used to this idea of the fortress. So whatever keeps stuff secure inside also fences off, uh, uh, fences off attacks from coming from the outside. Uh, this is not anymore the case in uh, in cyberspace. So security has become, or cybersecurity has become, a form of engineering. So you design systems so that they are resilient, they are robust, uh, so they can still work and function while they are under attack. Um, the defense is about fending off the attack, so it's about really retaliating or going after the attacker uh, or the source of the attack um, to make sure that, the, or to try to make sure that uh, there will there will not be a second attack uh, later on. Um, and, and this is interesting from an ethical and a strategic point of view. It is also problematic because it, it facilitates escalations dynamic uh, very very much. So it is problematic if we think about the private sector. Uh, the private sector is doing, uh, or is trying to do this more and more. Uh, in the US, we had um, uh, an attempt a few months ago for uh, laws to be passed to allow private sector to retaliate uh, attacks on their own. And this is quite close to what we call, we call vigilantism uh, uh, outside the cyber. And it's problematic because, especially because of the issues in attribution and so on and so forth. So basically delegating to the private sector the chance or the task or the responsibility to going after their attackers uh, is something that is really, really problematic. Take my smart light bulb, for example. It could be involved in a DDoS attack on a health facility. And am I to blame for that? Should a retaliatory attack come through to my network? Or do you need to go somewhere further further back the, down the chain? That's a very interesting question. And it's a question that is more and more pressing as we see smart cities and smart environments and IoT becoming more uh, pervasive because you will have different providers or different services all connected, and that means all uh, vulnerable. Uh, as, uh, as, yeah. as soon as something is connected, uh, it becomes uh, a possible target. So ascribing responsibility is one big issue. Who could be the source of the attack is another problem because we don't have yet mechanisms for attribution from a, let's say, legal uh, point of view or even tracking back, you know, uh, getting back to the actor is uh, still very problematic. What we'll start to be to see uh, as soon as um, or as AI becomes more, much more uh, pervasive is that we will be able to track back the source of the attack. So not the agent behind the attack, but the system that is uh, originating the attack. So AI will be able um, to, to trace it back and to, to, to retaliate Could against the system. Could you say some more about that, about how, how is AI going to help us identify the real source of the, the attack? So it's, uh, um, again, something that is not very much uh, deployed yet, but is, uh, I believe is about to happen, especially at the state level. Uh, it all starts um, in 2016. So the U.S. had this thing called the uh, Cyber Grand Challenge. Uh, it's a DARPA program. Um, and it was, for the first time, seven AI systems um, uh, playing a uh, famous uh, war game called Catcher the Flag. So the systems will do this, would identify their own vulnerabilities and patch them. At the same time, they will try to identify vulnerabilities in other systems and attack the vulnerabilities there, but also try to understand which systems was attacking them uh, and then uh, respond to those attacks in, in retaliation. So this means that AI systems can have an understanding of where the attack is coming from, trace it back, and then find a weak spot in the opponent system and attack it. Um, it's still very much experimental, but we know that the U.S. wants to start using these systems for national cyber defense starting next year. So uh, it's a prototype, I would say, that is very much uh, yeah. in If the this making. was a video podcast, you'd see a slightly terrified look uh, on, my, <laughs> on my face right now because the, the, this idea of autonomous uh, systems that are self-modifying in the face of other autonomous systems that are self-modifying where there have been some science fiction films about those, and they never really ended up, ended well uh, for thing for carbon based life forms. But it almost describes, I think, something a phenomenon that you've already written about yourself, which is this idea that between states and their cyber conflicts, there is this vicious cycle where attacks become easy to launch. The only way you can defend yourself is through having offence, a, a, a and that those are those offensive maneuvers. Um, become persistent, which results in a greater weaponization of the digital layers, which means that t attacks become easier to launch. Is, uh, isn't this sort of autonomous self-learning system an even faster version of that vicious cycle that you previously des had described? Indeed. The chances to make that, that, that cycle uh, 
quicker and more vicious uh, are quite high. The thing is that cyberspace is something that, strategically speaking, um, is a inoffense-led environment. So attacking is always a better choice than defending. It's not that you're going to win necessarily if you attack, but the chances are better. Defending is uh, a more uh, difficult position to uh, to maintain. So, And if you are a state and you're launching a cyber attack, you're also uh, in a better position than launching a physical attack because you're not shipping men and women uh, to, to, to uh, put their life in danger somewhere else and it's cheaper than a physical attack. So these two conditions making make states more prone to attack. In this context, defending is more difficult, so you have this difficult this very malicious cycle and AI is going to make it quicker and it's going to make it more um, more dangerous. The solution there, and this is something that we haven't seen yet, uh, and I am uh, advocating for it, I've uh, been doing this for a quite, quite a while, we need regulations. We need regulations for state behaviors. We need to make sure that things like a human on the loop is, uh, so having a, a human being controlling what these machines are doing, being able to stop their, their, uh, their actions at the right moment um, is a crucial condition. But we also need to have regulations at the international level that define what states can and cannot do in terms of using cyber means for national defense. If you think about this, um, cyberspace has been defined as the fifth domain of warfare. Now, this definition is very partial and I think is misleading. But in any case, we, we, we're waging war through the cyberspace, and yet we don't have any regulation for warfare activities into this context yet, uh, for the digital side of it, for the non-physical part of it. Uh, and we're learning, actually, that despite these attacks are not physical, so they don't cause physical damage necessarily, they are still very effective and can be very impactful. Uh, yet we don't have red lines. Uh, it's not clear what are the limits in, in which we tolerate operations and uh, above which we don't. Uh, we don't have criteria for proportionality. If state A attacks state B through cyber means and state B wants to respond, what is the proportionality criteria there? What, what are the variables, the variables that we... Uh, that we take into account. Proportionality is the one of the key criteria of international regulation when it comes to warfare because it puts, can, kind of put limits to escalation. If I do level 10 of damage, I, am, I'm, I will expect a, uh, an answer or reply that is 10, level 10 of damage and not level 11. We don't have this mechanism yet in, uh, in, in cyberspace. Uh, and we're using AI, or we start to use AI at the international level, and yet we we miss fundamental measures like um, uh, compelling regulation in terms of disclosure of vulnerabilities among allies, uh, creating um, sparring partners for the use of AI and making sure that we test as much as we can uh, for possible mistakes and failure. Just to clarify that, that, that observation, though, for people perhaps who, who are not as familiar with how states do this, I mean, there are essentially recognized protocols. Uh, if I'm going to have military maneuvers, I give you appropriate warning. If it's going to be a military exercise, uh, if we're going to do some jousting, maybe send our blackjack bombers over the north of Scotland or towards the north of Scotland, we know what the rules of engagement uh, are going to look like. And that's why you end up with these, I guess, these international incidents when the spy plane flies too close to the coast or the fighter plane flies too close to the spy plane. Uh, and those things have been built out of both sort of explicit dialogue and practice over the past 50 years, in a sense. So humankind, unfortunately, has been waging conflict since ever. And um, over time, we have developed ethical theories to to deal with these things. And you could go from pacifism to realism. So either war is always bad or war is always good as long as the state uh, uh, has its advantage. But also we have just war theory, which is a, an ethical theory, which is that has been there since Cicero, so since the ancient Romans, uh, as more than 2,000-year historical thinking and, and is a very refined and sophisticated framework. But it's a framework that has to do with physical conflicts. It's a framework that is there to limit bloodshed and casualties. Today, we're waging a, a kind of conflict that is not physical. We, we could wage the most effective conflicts without shedding a drop of blood. And that's a good thing, to some extent. But we lack the conceptual and the normative framework to understand how to deal with this. Uh, it's really, really new. But just to come on to that point, you know, waging a conflict, it seems to me that there are two different things that could go on. One is that we wage a conflict where we achieve our strategic ends of perhaps control or security or, or economic uh, value uh, without shedding blood in the sense that we're able to perhaps 
skew the way digitally based institutions operate. The second thing that could happen with cyber warfare is that it starts to have real tangible effects in the real world in in meat space. And I think the Ukrainians have been on the, the wrong end of some of this with their banking system being shut down and electrical grids being shut down. And, and it may not, we may not be too far where that second risk starts to emerge where perhaps it's not planes dropping out of the sky, but it's hospitals not having electricity for the incubators, for the neonates, uh, or it's uh, you know radar systems not working on air traffic control and actually having physical effects that might result in some sort of bloodshed and then attribution becomes more complex. But it, it feels to me that you, as the, the attacks, the quality of the attacks magnify and as the the rules don't exist. So you've got some sense of plausible uh, excuse that says, well, I didn't breach the Geneva Convention in doing this. There's a greater risk that those things might start to, to, to appear in the next few years. Oh, indeed. And so the, the, the other element of, that I would add there is that as technology, digital technologies become more pervasive and our infrastructure start to rely on those technology, technologies in a deeper way, well, they become much much more uh, exposed to this kind of attacks. I mean, the U.S. they discovered in uh, in March 2018 that there had been Russian infiltration via cyber means into their key uh, national infrastructure, water, electricity, and nuclear. Uh, this gives you a sense of you know you could use cyber as a as a weapon or as a means to cause physical damage. Um, and I should say that it's an interesting problem because when cyber becomes a a tool to do a damage that we could have done before with conventional weapons, uh, it's perhaps a bit less problematic because we could just treat cyber as a, as a form of, a new kind of weapon, but of the kind that we have before. And there is a wealth of or a number of regulations there. But there remains an area in which the damage is not immediately or not even like a step towards the, the physical damage. It remains into the virtual and still is problematic and still is uh, impactful. Um, Stealing data from citizens of citizens, for example, or um, corrupting a system so that it won't be destroyed but just stop functioning for two or three hours. An hospital uh, or an electric grid that that is also like um, uh, very problematic. And for that area, so for this virtual part, we uh, we haven't defined yet um, measures or regulations. And more importantly, I would say not so much uh, in terms of regulating the damage that you can do eventually but in terms of the actions that you can take into the cyber. So the question is, it's not so much about what do we do if there is a cyber attack that stops our uh, water supply, and so we, we get out of water in a week time, for example. It's more like, what are the actions that the state is allowed or not allowed to do in cyberspace when dealing with uh, uh, right. national infrastructure? Because we, we could easily agree that you know it's right to temper infrastructure for two days, but not for three days, too, so that you can accept some some pressure, but not to some extreme. So it's this kind of gray area, which is way, way before, or a little bit before the, the physical damage, but it's still very impactful that we haven't considered yet. We're about halfway through the podcast, and this is a message from Azim. If you're enjoying the podcast, it really helps if you can rate it on whichever podcast platform you use or share it with a few friends just by email or on social media. Once you do that, it helps other interested listeners find it, enjoy these conversations as much as you do. I really appreciate it. Back to our discussion. There have been some efforts, but I think that, that to put some rules together, uh, I'm sure uh, the Tallinn manual is, is sort of one. It's been written what, five years ago, but it was really a sort of voluntary academic analysis exercise. How do you go about bringing a set of rules together, defining those uh, red lines and the, the sort of current environment in a, in a way. The Tallinn Manual has been uh, an interesting experiment, but one of us failed. Uh, yeah. It's failed two times because there are two versions. So, yeah, 2013, uh, 2016. Yeah, yeah, so I would say a repeated mistake. Uh, <laughs> um, the problem with the Tallinn Manual is that the approach there is exactly the one I was mentioning before is based on analogies. So we have this kind of conflicts which are different from the one that we had before. We want to regulate them. Let's see how we deregulate the one that we have been doing, we've been waging until now, and so we can develop analogies with the new ones. That's a mistake because it's, it's the proverbial uh, square peg into the, the, the round uh, the round. Oh, Cyber conflicts are a new phenomenon, and we need to have a new conceptual framework to, to, to address them. 
um, uh, otherwise we 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 miss uh, a huge opportunity to to, uh, to 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 regulate them in in the proper way. Uh, indeed, we need regulations. I have to say, um, the regulations come from a better understanding of this phenomenon. They also need a, a political effort, uh, and it's too bad. That, for example, the the UNGGE, the UN, had a group of governmental experts working on the regulation of state behavior in cyberspace. And the group has been working for uh, over a decade. Uh, and eventually, at the very last minute, the last meeting, when they were to provide the, uh, um, the final reports to the General Assembly, the group failed um, and failed for political reasons because there were some states who wanted to um, uh, follow a more international uh, law approach and other states who wanted to have a different uh, framework to regulate cyber conflicts. We need to resume this level of conversation uh, uh, we need to, 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 to have an international effort put together by as many states as we can. It, it might be impossible to have all everybody on board, but the leading one, or as many as we could, uh, it's important. Um, and there are moments in which we have uh, missed this opportunity also on the European side. So the European um, Union had um, a new cybersecurity and defense framework issued last year. And it's a, it's a huge missed opportunity because... Rather than thinking about cybersecurity and cyber defense and understanding what the differences are there, and so regulate cybersecurity, which we mentioned before, is about resilience, is about engineering systems, but also defense and so the state behavior in cyberspace. The European Union didn't focus on the latter, so it's all about measuring and making sure that the resilience measures and capacity buildings are there, which are good, good aspects, but it lacks the other, the other leg. And that's also a missed opportunity because I'm not wildly optimistic because we're moving away from a rules-based order. Whether we want to or not, there's a growth in bilateralism. There's a belief that supranational uh, institutions are not as sensitive to the immediate needs of a local population. And I think that the level of coordination it requires just seems to fly in the face of how states think about these, these problems. I mean, we've seen more unwinding in the last two years, uh, since January uh, the 21st of 19, uh, 2017, then we have winding towards sort of collective agreements across a whole range of different places, whether it's trade or climate change. Uh, it, but are, are there efforts that are going on underway to really push this forward? So I think that the efforts will come up soon enough. Um, the, the, as often happens in, in politics, uh, unfortunately, it will be driven by necessity more than by will. The thing is that cybersecurity and cyber defense, they are, cannot be effect, they are not effective uh, as conventional security and defense insofar as a system of alliances, for example, is as strong as the weakest link. So if you are NATO and you are considering about, about you think about cyber defense, you can't really think about just in terms of one nation uh, is the whole system. So this means that you start to have agreements in terms of what kind of technology is shared, what kind of information is shared, what kind of actions uh, different states can or cannot do. And that could be like a, a fertile uh, ground on which regulation can be, um, uh, yeah, can start to, 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 to emerge from, from there. The other thing is that we are witnessing increasing capabilities from uh, actors which are not necessarily part of our uh, Western alliances, Russia and China. Mm -hmm. They are growing their AI capabilities and they have shown that they can use them in an harmful way and in an effective way. If you think about AI and the so-called cyber conflicts. Um, and so this means that we have to improve our defenses. And improving our defenses means growing capabilities, but also starting to have um, agreements. And agreements can become uh, multilateral agreements, which can become eventually like the, the, the groundwork for regulations. So I think it might not be a top-down, it might be a bottom-up and top-down, but we will see the the pressing need of coordination and cooperation uh, uh, to be to to maintain uh, an effective leverage into the international realm, uh, and that might drive uh, the, the need for regulation. Well, the, we're also seeing that large companies have an important part to play in in all of this as well. There are classes of attacks which no nation state is able to on its own defend against, and you have to call Microsoft or Cloudflare or Google to identify the origin of the threat and somehow suppress it. Uh, I find that particularly particularly interesting because we haven't necessarily asked our large companies to assume those 
sorts of roles. Uh, but I think t- to their credit and probably to their profit motive as well, they have they've generally stood up to to do that. And and it just seems to be the case, you know, that if you've got uh, if you've got something that's happening at the router routing table level uh, or something that's happening at the operating system level that spills easily across across borders uh, from the Ukraine all the way up to to, to Denmark, uh, for example, uh, you may need to rely on someone else who has a global footprint and that wouldn't necessarily be a state. Yeah, it is it is an interesting change with respect to the past and, and it's due to the fact that, due to the fact that um, when it comes to the technology side, the private sector as the upper end, as a, the wealth of expertise is there. Uh, I remain a little bit wary about the idea of uh, delegating or offloading um, the defense or the security responsibilities onto the private sector. Whether it is a national state or a sovereign national state, security and defense should remain responsibilities and duties of the political power, whatever form of political power we have there, Mm -hmm. because it comes with great responsibilities. And also because in the long or in the medium and the long term, if you think about um, establishing a context in which there are regulations, there is attribution, this means dealing with states and it would be really, really weird to have private companies uh, setting this kind of um, what's called the Digital Geneva Convention, for example. No? So, it's a, so we, a neutral body of private companies which are providing security, but also identifying possible attackers. And it's unrealistic in the context of international uh, relation. Can we really think of a, a digital body made of private sectors? telling of China or Russia or the US for having done something illegitimate or illegally into cyberspace. Uh, it does not seem the, the, the appropriate venue or the proper actor. Uh, it's curious that the, 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 the call for this kind of authority came from the private sector. It's interesting, but I think that the responsibility remains with the political power, or we call it, uh, just to leave unqualified. Yeah. It, it's, it's really interesting. I, you know, what I was thinking when you were saying this was, of course, a lot of the setup of the internet, the original governance, a set of rules was not done at a state level. It was really done at, at a level of uh, you know, spin-outs of academia and then some early private companies. Of course, they had relationships with ARPA, I mean, advanced networking systems, building a big part of the, the internet backbone. And that private companies have come together to create a whole set of standards that that make these things function quite well. And a great example of a, uh, of, of a, a case where a state did it was uh, the Minitel in France, uh, which it did actually build probably something that was very cyber resilient compared to the internet. Uh, and, and then you made the, 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 this killer point for me, which is, could you imagine a large private company telling China off? And then immediately I thought of Google re-entering China in the last sort of six months or so and saying, well, no, you're probably right. So this becomes a knotty, thorny problem because you have these technologies that spread across borders uh, that can really only be managed in some sense by the large private companies who develop them, but the ultimate responsibility of the state, and it's in, its core fiduciary duty to its citizens, is to keep it safe, keep them safe. I mean, even libertarians agree on that, with us on that. That's indeed, that's the, the point, that's the reason why, no? Yeah. And uh, well, we are in London, we're back to the UK, so this is from Hobbes on, uh, we've learned this lesson. Yeah. Um, and it's important that we make this point clear and, that we, and we stress it because this responsibility, this duty cannot be uh, clawed back by any other actors and it should not. Uh, at this moment, there is a discussion about whether well, there's going to be a national stage in the future, we're going to have several national actors, what is going to be. And it's a very interesting discussion, but whatever is going to be, uh, it will have this kind of duties and responsibilities. Political power is there for many reasons. One is, one of which is uh, to ensure the security of uh, the citizens. Um, otherwise, there would be no real point. I mean, not, not a real point. No, there, would, there wouldn't be much point. Cyber warfare is fascinating. And, and I think you have shared, you shared when we met back in June, um, some amazing live threat maps, uh, which I'm going to put in the notes to the to the podcast. But the other area that you you look at in general are questions of of ethics uh, within the context of of digital uh, technology. And maybe just as a sort of 101 level, maybe give us a view on your views to why uh, ethical governance is so important in a world of digital technologies uh, and what makes them different. 
So digital technologies, as we said before, they, they, they are pervasive and, and they are horizontally distributed in our life. They are horizontally distributed in our, uh, in our identities, if you wish. Uh, and they can change the way we do things, but they can also change and reshape the environment in which we live. And eventually they also have an impact on what we become. Uh, of course, we're developing regulations on the way we use these technologies, on the way we produce these technologies. But regulations, when they are good regulations, they set the minimum requirement. They identify what is legal and illegal. They identify this level of compliance, which is meant to be there to avoid that horrible things don't happen, that we can find remedies when they happen, but also leave a space for do things in a better way. Well, on this space, you can imagine law or regulations being this kind of groundwork uh, or the, the floor of your room, and then you have this empty white room. Ethics kicks in when it comes to the what we put into this room. How do we make sure that this room becomes a better room uh, so that we do things better and not worse? Uh, and so ethics is important in this sense, to make sure that we don't miss out on the opportunities, for one thing, so that we can use these technologies to do good things uh, um, on the one side, but also to make sure that we don't do bad things, even when these things are legal. Um, you can protect privacy in, in many ways, of course, uh, but the minimum level of or the legal protection of privacy doesn't necessarily mean that you acting to make sure that you do the best thing for the possible users. So ethics is this plus things. I would call it uh, uh, compliance plus, if you wish. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me as uh, complex for the ethical discussion is, uh, especially with digital technologies, is good, well-meaning people ending up doing bad things. Uh, and we look at the, the stories of uh, what's happened as particularly social media platforms have developed and, uh, and and spread, we're starting to see many negative effects that were not designed into them. They were often designed to be very you know, positive experiences. Uh, so how do you how do you go about thinking ethically if you're building a product and what we've discovered, whether it's a you know in, in instagram and 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 young teenage body image or it's facebook and and attention, uh, how do you go about thinking? What am I going to build? How should I build it? That's a very interesting question. It's um, So, so far we have seen this, that uh, digital technologies have been developed and used immediately, mostly because it's a, uh, an area driven by private companies and there is a fear for competition. So as soon as there is a new product, we launch it into the market and we use it. Uh, and then we discover why we use it, whether it was entirely good or not entirely good. whether And, and it's because it's a technology that is really malleable, it, Oftentimes you have dual use, a strong presence of a dual use uh, uh, affordance there. What we try to do with um, the, the, the Digital Ethics Lab in Oxford is actually trying to uh, mitigate these risks uh, and do what we call the foresight ethical analysis. So try to understand, given a technology and given the context in which, in which this technology uh, will be developed, what are the ethical risks that might emerge there? And also, what are the opportunities that might emerge there? And how we mitigate the first and also make sure that we don't miss on uh, on the second. Um, it's a methodology, uh, uh, and it would be uh, perhaps too pedantic to explain it here, but it's the idea to try to cast our views a little bit farther down the line and just not think about the immediate market that we want to conquer, not the immediate use, but also how our technology interacts with the environment, the cultural context, the moral context in which it will be uh, deployed and, and have a little bit of a, a, a forward thinking about what this interaction can bring about. And would you imagine that that's a sort of thing that as a, as a product team, you might want to have a synthesized version as part of the toolkit when you think about a product and think about entering into a new market? So something you would want companies to take on board as part I of think, their process? I, I think so. So uh, we, I think we got to the point where uh, having ethical considerations or ethical analysis in place is not just something that you do for just in order to do the right reasons, but it helps a lot to the profit and, 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 and the company. We have seen too many times already that when whenever a product crashes or encroaches upon the values of its users or its customers, then there is a backlash. Um, uh, the examples in the UK is the Care.data program. Uh, was a program which 
was paused indefinitely because of ethical reasons. It's not. It was the first, for those who don't know, is this idea of having a national uh, systems collecting um, personal health data for the UK residents and citizens, and it would have allowed uh, or led to a better healthcare systems because you could, you know, different GPs accessing uh, your data wherever you're moving around the country. Took ages to get it in place. It was um, uh, launched. Uh, too bad that uh, authorities forgot to inform citizens about privacy risks, security risks, transparency. The backlash was such that the program was cancelled uh, and a lot of money wasted, a lot of time wasted. Uh, and it's true for the pub public sector, it's also true for the private sector. Um, uh, private companies, the one who are going to fill our houses with IoT toasters, uh, thermostators, chairs, TV, they build on reputation and trust. And this reputation and trust uh, uh, Grow, grow because also the way they, their products meet our moral values and, and our cultural values. So wanting to think about ethics is something that is going to be good for profit. But there are techno-utilitarians who will come and say, oh, come on, everyone's got better off because of the interplay of technology and capitalism. You know, maternal well-being is much better than it's ever been. You know, but childhood mortality is lower. Uh, calorific intake in, is the, the baseline has improved wherever you go and technology drags people out of worse conditions into into better conditions and it does it does that by you know knocking your elbows on a few ethical banisters uh, in its journey this is the demand for digital ethics is simply a demand to slow down the rate at which we improve the human condition rather not i would say Whenever we miss ethical analysis at the beginning of uh, a development or, uh, or a deployment process for a new technology, what we find is that we have social rejection, and social rejection is easily picked up by policymakers and decision makers, which then come up with very hard regulations, which hinder technological innovation. This is the cycle that we see oftentimes. That's, I think, the risk that we're running now. And I that's, mean, and that's it, the real risk. So yeah. uh, it's true that... A rejectionism I, of technology's virtues because we are sort of reasonably annoyed at a bunch of poor ethical outcomes that have emerged. And the poor ethical outcomes can become much worse as technology becomes more sophisticated and more um, diffused in our, or, or, or common in our environments. So I would say that I agree with the, with the idea that technology is taking us into a much better place. Uh, totally, totally get the point there. And it's not what we're arguing, is that we could, it could, technology used and designed ethically can take us to an even better place. And the cost for doing that is really marginal because technology, ethics takes uh, expert thinking and um, that doesn't cost much and uh, usually happens quite quickly. So yeah. the, the cost for improving greatly the use of technology and the way we design technology is minimal and the advantage is amazing. Well, there's another challenge, I think, I guess, which is that ethics have, uh, they are, they are, norm and culture dependent. There's a sort of path dependency towards the sorts of ethical frameworks we, we have. I think that's why the 1947 Declaration of Human Rights was so remarkable in the sense that it got in a bunch of nations to sort of agree. Uh, so that there is that, that, that question of the conflicts of cultures, the conflicts of identities. I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that different people value different things. And, and, and the second challenge, I think, seems to be that our, our norms, um, what we believe is reasonable or not reasonable, may start to change. And they may change more regularly in a continually connected society, whether it's our attitude towards you know, animals and how we treat them, or whether it's our attitude towards notions of privacy. So how do you imagine a digital ethics that can cope with sort of different cultural backgrounds uh, both within a state and across states, and also a space where where we draw the line is a line that um, I, I think Peter Singer uses sort of drawing a line in pencil around values because you may get more data that you rub out and you move. How do you how do you think that digital ethics should cope with that the sort of the volatility or the variability of those those ethics over time? There are a few things that perhaps three that might be interesting to keep in mind here. So ethics is not necessarily the grit in the engine. It's not there to put obstacles. It might well be like the the oil in the engine, so something that makes it work better and in a smoother way. The second thing is that we should aim, to some extent, to, to find fundamental values. So the amazing thing with the Human Rights uh, Declaration is that it goes back to what is 
the, fund, the fundamental values that we all respect. Then they might be respected in different ways in different contexts. So privacy means a different thing in China or in the US or in Europe, but it's still a, a, value, a strong value that we, that we all um, uh, care about. So we need to do this kind of effort when it comes to digital technologies as well. We need to understand what are the fundamental core values that most of us would agree, even if then those values are uh, implemented slightly different uh, in different places around the world. Uh, it is important that we, and I think one as one aspect that can, or one aspect that can be mentioned in this context, we take technology to be again human centric. That is about supporting human flourishing and human values, uh, and so we start to to, to think in, about technologies uh, in this digital technology in, in this way. So trying to find a more fundamental level in which ethical analysis can be um, can be uh, designed or developed and use that level to, to to have a common ground for different actor to, actors to discuss this, these topics. The other aspects, so one is the positive approach to ethics, the other is the more fundamental uh, views that we have to, to, to develop when it comes to digital technologies. The third aspect is that ethics is not uh, a marble statue in a Roman square. Uh, it's something that is dynamic. It evolves. Uh, you don't fix it once and then forget about it. Is a project. So, and we would imagine that what we define today is going to be refined uh, by the next generation. Uh, and these are constantly evolving uh, thinking, uh, and likely so because our societies are evolving systems. And ethics is an element of the system, so it would evolve with societies. The hope would be that rather than being that ethics being shaped by societies and by technologies, it actually shapes societies and technologies. So it's about the power balance between the different elements of uh, of the systems. Uh, and this would be perhaps the, 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 the best uh, way to approach these problems. Rosario, I love the idea that uh, ethics can shape sort of the, the, the systems and the, the, the world in the future. And just as a, a last question, you know, ethic, ethicists are clearly not pessimists, you clearly aren't. And many of our listeners are the founders who are building this digital future or they're investors who are uh, supporting the founders building that digital future. So what are the positive steps as a last thought that they can take to ensure that ethical uh, thinking uh, applies to the technologies that they build? Aside from getting in touch with us, uh, it is about think about their technologies uh, within the context in which they're going to be deployed, trying to uh, gain this kind of uh, far-fetched view uh, of the use that could be made of their technologies and design the technologies according to what they think is the best use. Don't design, don't deploy technologies in silos, in vacuum. Uh, they are part, they are, I would say, uh, a living part, and I would use living uh, within inverted commas, but of our environments. So let's think about how these uh, little actors or little items will work in the rest of the environment and how they would impact on it and take this potential impact into account. Well, my Apple Watch is blinking an alert at me, so I think it's time we have to draw this uh, conversation to close. Rosario Tadeo, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you. Well, if you found the Exponential View podcast valuable, there are simple ways you can do to support it. Number one, subscribe to get a new episode each week. Number two, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. This really helps us reach more people. And number three, share this episode on social media or email it to your colleagues. I really appreciate it. Until next week.